Capital Brands are down the Providencia Lake. When the diamonds surface, after the water shine, there's a chain of islands that's yours and mine. This is my island land that I love. Turks and Caicos, that's your love. Preserve its beauty, let it remain. It's our treasure, our name. This is my island land that I love. Turks and Caicos, that's your love. This is my Because this the island you're looking for Like a ship without a sail You're drawn to our shores Sail on, sail on, sail on to tranquility In our land we're all one people One family This is my island land that I love Turks and Cape and Fats from above Preserve it, beauty, let it remain It's our treasure And the queen come on a shield to show what our forefathers begun. The pelican protected by sides of from harm. Supported by two flamingos, this is a coat of arms. This is my island that I love. Turks and Caicos, that's from above. Preserve its beauty, let it remain. It's our treasure, our name. This is my island that I love. Turks and Caicos, that's from above. This is my Turning into Let's Talk Tourism, a show brought to you by the Turks and Caicos Islands Tourism Board. My name is Courtney Robinson, Marketing Representative UK and EU for the Tourist Board, and I'm happy to be here with you today. The global growth in the flow of patients and health professionals, as well as medical technology, capital funding, and regulatory regimes across national borders, has given rise to a new patterns of consumption and production of healthcare services over recent decades. A significant new element of a growing trade in healthcare has involved the movement of patients across borders in the pursuit of medical treatments and healthcare, a phenomenon commonly termed medical tourism. Medical tourism occurs when consumers elect to travel across international borders with the intention of receiving some form of medical treatment. This treatment may span the full range of medical services, but most commonly includes dental care, cosmetic surgery, elective surgery, and fertility treatment. There has been a shift towards patients from richer, 
more developed nations traveling to less developed countries to access health care, largely driven by low-cost treatments available in the latter and helped by cheaper flights and internet sources of information. Despite high-profile media interest and coverage, there is a lack of hard research evidence on the role and impact of medical tourism for OECD countries. Whilst there is an increasing amount written on the subject of medical tourism, such materials is hardly ever evidence-based. The free movement of goods and services under the auspices of the World Trade Organization and its general agreement on the trade in services has accelerated the liberalization of the trade in health services as have developments with regard to the use of regional and bilateral trade agreements. As healthcare is predominantly a service industry, this has made health services more tradable global commodities. The consumption of healthcare in a foreign land is a not a new phenomenon, and developments must be situated within the historical context. Individuals have traveled abroad for health benefits since ancient times, and during the 19th century in Europe, for example, there was a fashion for the growing middle classes to travel to spa towns to take in the waters, which were believed to have health-enhancing qualities. During the 20th century, wealthy people from less developed areas of the world traveled to developed nations to access better facilities and highly trained medics. However, the shifts that are currently underway with regard to medical tourism are quantitatively and qualitatively different from earlier forms of health-related travel. So, what are the implications of these changes in medical travel for OECD countries? Fundamentally, such developments point towards a paradigm shift in the understanding and delivery of health services. The market in medical tourists is set to grow, with potentially far-reaching impacts on publicly funded healthcare, including the development notion of patients as consumers of healthcare, rather than citizens with rights to healthcare services. There will, of course, be a range of attendant risk and opportunities for patients. Predictions for this emerging global market are difficult, but the direction and speed of its travel is becoming increasingly clear. From marketing materials, it is apparent that the range of treatments available overseas for prospective medical tourists are wide, including cosmetic surgery, such as breast augmentation, facelift, liposuction, BBL, Brazilian butt lift, dentistry, ideally cosmetic reconstruction, cardiology and cardiac surgery, essentially bypass, valve replacement, orthopedic surgery, chiefly hip replacement, resurfacing, knee replacement, joint surgery, biatric surgery, commonly gastric bypass, gastric bending, fertility, slash reproductive system, for the most part, IVF or gender reassignment, organ cell and tissue transplantation, eye surgery, such as LASIK or cataract surgery, diagnostics and checkups. Collectively, not all of these treatments would be classed as acute and life-threatening, and some are clearly more marginal to mainstream health care. Some forms of plastic surgery would be excluded from health spending other forms of medical tourism will be counted within the remit of health trade. There is somewhat a blurring between the lines of what is medical tourism and health tourism. Medical tourism is when consumers elect to travel across international borders with the intention of receiving some form of medical treatment. This treatment may span full range of medical services, but most commonly, again, dental, cosmetic, elective surgery, and facility treatment. Setting the boundary of what is health and counts as medical tourism for the purposes of trade accounts is not straightforward. Within this range of treatments, not all would be included within health trade. Cosmetic surgery for aesthetic rather than reconstructive reasons, for example, would be considered outside the health boundary. Medical tourism is related to the broader notion of health tourism, which in some countries has long-lasting historical antecedents of spa towns, and coastal localities and other therapeutic landscapes. Some commenters have considered health and medical tourism as a combined phenomenon, but with different emphasis. Some proponents define health tourism as the organized travel outside one's local environment for the maintenance, enhancement, or restoration of an individual's well-being 
in mind and body. This definition encompasses medical tourism, which is delimited to the organized travel outside one's natural health care jurisdiction for the enhancement or restoration of the individual's health through medical intervention. We believe the concept of medical tourism does have analytical value. As a concept, it conveys both the willingness to travel and willingness to treat as core processes within the new global market of health travel. It also captures the health sector element as well as the wider economic impacts of such travel. Such a focus facilitates an understanding of which individuals go where, why, and for what, and what the impacts is for whom from this. Whilst we, can, whilst we can agree medical tourism may be, have little to do with general tourism, the term emphasizes the commodification and commercialization of health travel. Medical tourism also highlights the role of the industry, issues of advertising, supply-induced demand, and extends beyond the notion of willingness to travel. A destination such as ours, known around the world for luxury, Exclusivity, escapism, sun, sand, and sea. Can we in the Turks and Caicos Islands capitalize on this growing global trend? Well, I'll discuss today's topic with my guest right after this break. you've just joined in, today's topic is medical tourism. Again, medical tourism is when a person travels to another country for medical care. Each year, millions of people around the world are unaware that they participate in medical tourism. Medical tourists from the United States commonly travel to Mexico, Canada, sometimes Europe, as well as countries in Central America, South America, the Caribbean, and far away as Turkey. Whilst Caribbean nationals typically travel to the United States, the Dominican Republic, or Colombia. Growth in the popularity of medical tourism has captured the attention of policymakers, researchers, and the media. Some places may be simultaneously acting as countries of origin and destination in the medical tourism marketplace. High-income countries may service overseas elites, whilst at the same time their citizens choose to travel as medical tourists to lower- and middle-income countries for treatment. Thus, Harley Street in the United Kingdom and facilities including the Mayo and Cleveland Clinics in the United States have long-standing reputations in the international provision of health care. Conversely, the emergence of low-cost treatments in Thailand, India, or parts of Eastern Europe will attract individuals from higher-income countries who pursue treatments on the basis of cost. People may travel to another country to get health care for many reasons, including a treatment or procedure 
that may be cheaper in another country. To receive care from a healthcare provider who shares the traveler's culture and language. To get a procedure or therapy that is not available or approved in their country of origin. We will discuss today's topic on medical tourism with my guest, Dr. Denise Brethwaite Tennant, the Chief Executive Officer of the Terzingas Islands Hospital Interhealth Canada. Before I bring her on, let me tell you a little bit more about her. Dr. Denise Brethwaite Tennant is the Chief Executive Officer of the Turks and Caicos Islands Hospital Interhealth Canada and has over 20 years of experience in health care. She has been privileged to be at the forefront of initiatives that have driven hospital and health system development and people-centered services and health innovation. She is a results-oriented professional who has demonstrated that the strength of a healthcare system lies in the ability of leadership to leverage multidisciplinary teams, innovative technologies, and adherence to evidence-based principles. She has a sound background in healthcare service management, quality, emergency and disaster, critical care management, hospital incident control, and project management. She has led the introduction of several new services and programs at the Turks and Caicos Hospital. She has a degree in biology and a minor in sorry. She has a degree in biology and a minor in chemistry from Liberty University in the USA. She graduated from the University of the West Indies with a specialist degree in emergency medicine. Thereafter, she obtained a master's in international management with a specialization in health sector management from the University of Liverpool. Her vision for the Turks and Caicos Islands health system includes the harnessing of advances in the health technology and infrastructure landscape to become more resilient, integrated, and environmentally friendly, people-centered, and for the services to be delivered at the highest levels achievable, exceeding expectation, both in performance as well as value for money. She's a Tarsingas Islander and a native of Grand Turk, the nation's capital. She is the wife of Dittore and mother of Dejanel, Diane, and Donteo. Her interests include public speaking, empowering women, and the delivery of leadership development programs. Dr. Denise Brathwaite Tennant, welcome to Let's Talk Tourism. How are you today? Well, thank you very much, Mr. Courtney Robinson, for that introduction. And I must say that amazing background on medical tourism and the landscape of that. And I am doing great today. How is your energy? It's a pleasure to be here. Very good. How is your energy? Oh, my energy is up. Superb. Excellent. I'm in a positive mood and a growth mindset today. Oh, that sounds good. We we, we like great energy in this space. So (laughs) let's start the show. So as a student, were you always interested in the sciences? Yes, I was. Um, I'm one of those few persons, and I say few persons because I tell young people, don't worry about it. If you are 14, for example, and you haven't yet narrowed down what you want to do in life. But for me, from primary school, I wanted to be a doctor. Okay. I was fascinated by being a doctor. I wanted to be in the business of caring. I wanted to be in the business of, of, of fixing body. So, yeah, from, from primary school, that was it. So I can only say that that is a gift that was planted in me and that uh, I'm always aware of from that age. Did you see something on television or maybe a character you watch on television or in a book you read and you said, that's me, that's what I want for myself? Well, I can't remember Grey's Anatomy back then, <laughs> right? And I'm a real sci-fi, law and order type okay. fan. I'm same a real Matrix type person, <laughs> right? But um, I do remember my mother who... Um, Worked was a long-term public servant. She worked. She moved to being the land registrar, and I do remember her had a love for plants and uh, going to the Dan Grant Ark Hospital. And she used to always visit there, and I would go with her. Plus, being a tomboy um, growing up at that age, I can have scars to show for doing that. And I was also fascinated by the caregivers, how they cared for me, and um, the impact that they had on my life. Uh, at that age too. 
So I think those also two were catalysts to understand that that probably was going to be one of my purposes. That's a great motivation. So when you uh, finished university, did you do anything? You were a general practitioner or did you specialize? I specialize in emergency medicine. And that is also something that I found that I loved. I loved that um, you were the physician that encountered people at the first contact. You had the opportunity to be able to help people to navigate um, at that very first point of contact through a very stressful situation uh, in their lives. You also have to act very quickly when you're in emergency medicine to make the diagnosis to stabilize and create that change. Mm -hmm. And the change that you create for people is very visible and palpable. And so to me, I said, this is what I think aligns with how I feel, how I want to give back. I want to be on the forefront of touching people's lives and being there when they make that first contact and holding their hand through what can be a very difficult and challenging time for their lives, both as the patient and both as the, the family member or the friend who's actually coming to the emergency room mm -hmm. with them during that crisis in their life. But that is indeed a crisis, and you have to be the calming force along with providing care. Mm -hmm. So where did, you, where did you do your residency? I did my residency in Jamaica. Well, I've been able to transcend to a university of okay. <laughs> I started out at the uh, University of the West Indies in St. Augustine in Trinidad, which I thoroughly enjoyed my years. It allowed me to see the Caribbean experience from that perspective, both from being educated uh, in Trinidad and also the cultural experience of being in Trinidad, which was quite different from home. And then I moved to Jamaica, and uh, that's where I did my specialty in emergency medicine again under the UWI umbrella, and you will recognize that UEI is really keeping the charts UWI in terms of uh, internationally recognized school. I knew it from there. Many of us <laughs> alumni knew it already from there. I mean, UE doesn't play with you. In no. you it really requires you to be um, think very quickly on your feet. They, they really do um, push you to go out of your comfort zone, to to be leaders in your own right and to have independent thinking. They don't really spoon feed you that much, um, you know, but it is an environment, I think, by the time you've graduated from the UWI, uh, you are a strong individual, both in character right. and both in your knowledge. And having to spend those years in Jamaica and also Trinidad, it gives me quite a regional perspective of different healthcare systems, uh, different cultures, the way how patients approach their health, and so I, I found it was uh, very enriching for me to transcend those two campuses. Sounds good. So you explained about your experience. Did you have a mentor while you were there, or was it an enriching experience working with various doctors, nurses, and teams of people? I certainly believe uh, in mentorship and the role of mentorship, and yes, I did. Um, there were two main mentors in my life in those early days. One would be Dr. Hugh Malcolm. Who used to be, who was the first chief minister of the Turks and Caicos Islands and a close uh, friend of my mother and family. And the other actually was Dr. Honorable Rufus Ewing because he was ahead of me in many of the programs. And, um, you know, he, so he was, both of them were really good mentors to me to encourage me, keep me motivated, answer my questions. And so I believe in the role of mentorship and I also believe in the role of of passing forward, so yes. I do have mentees in my life also. That's good. So why did you move from being a practicing physician to the administrative end, and what brought on that decision? Well, as I progressed within the healthcare system as a physician, I certainly realized where, as I was giving up myself and we all give ourselves to the front lines of direct patient care, it also became apparent to me, and this is my perspective because everybody would have different perspectives of a system, it became apparent to me that it's very important with my knowledge of the healthcare system that I be a part of the decision-making capacity because you can have persons who are in decision-making capacity about a healthcare system and how it operates, but they don't truly, fully understand down to the grassroots levels, or can triangulate while certain resources needed and the importance of that, or while certain resource maybe can be scaled down or scaled up. 
also, I think, having my knowledge and the experience that I gained is very intricate. And I had a, and I needed to have a voice at the table. Mm -hmm. And so that requires me to have a transition in my life where I gradually move away from the front lines and develop myself professionally to be able to have that seat at the table around decision making and advocate for patients, advocate for their families and advocate for the team yes. that I was working on in the front line. And so I thought that was a natural progression and it's still a progression. It's still a journey. It's still a journey. I will tell you that <laughs> because you realize that you have to look at from different lenses when you are on the front line and when you are where you are now at an executive and administrative uh, level. Because on the front line, you think, why can't A move to B? Now, right. when you are on the administrative level, you then see the complexity, mm -hmm. right, of moving from A to B and all of the various hoops that you have to jump through mm -hmm. to move to A to B and that the level of um, data, the level of engagement, the level of buy-in that you have to do to move from A to B. But you do move from A to B. Yes. Now, one thing, two things I picked mm -hmm. up, there are a few things I picked up on your bio. But this main one, people-centered, mm -hmm. what mm -hmm. does that mean? Okay, people-centered, and I want to define what people is. And this is away from the terminology that was patient-centered. People-centered meaning that you are designing services that are for people and you're involving people in the design of those services. And so the people that make those services, that system, that organized care, right, are not only just the patients, so hence moving from patient-centered to people-centered, but you also have to consider the healthcare workers and other workers, non-healthcare workers that are in that system. You have to think of the government, right, as a key agency in that, and what are their priorities, the community, and what are the priorities of the community, and patients and family. And they all have to have an integral role in the service formation and in the service delivery. So when you keep people at the center of all projects that you're doing, just like we always say, when you're doing a project, try to keep health yes. and the health impact at the center and the forefront. Yes. Don't leave it out in when you're doing that, that um, development or that project. Think about what is going to be that impact to health and the health system. And so this is build designing services and building services and maintaining services with the people focus in mind. Wow, very impactful. So as a growing country, many persons look that worked in the health fraternity don't always look or sound like us, indigenous Turks and Turks Islands. Do you think that it's important to have more local health care professionals administering services, or is a bland better? I certainly believe in diversity. I believe in diversity. But equally, I also believe in local capacity building local capacity building. And what do I mean by local capacity building? During this pandemic, if every country didn't realize that during this pandemic, it was almost in some instances, every man jacked for himself, for use of a better term. You were so locked into your own systems. And so therefore, the systems that had more adaptability, more resiliency, more local capacity, their speed in which to adapt to the change of this pandemic was much faster, much more robust. And so what we have learned here, at least in the Turks and Caicos Islands, from our experience that we're still in a pandemic, was there is a need for us to build our local capacity. So let me just give you an example. Uh, we have a cadre of physicians based on the numbers as defined in our service level agreement with the government. So that we have a continuity of service uh, those consultant physicians, when they go and they leave and they have to break, we have a pool of locums that come in within the region, but outside of the region also, in order to cover those physicians and maintain continuity service. What happened to us during the pandemic is that those locums, rightly so, were needed by their own governments. Mm -hmm. They were needed by their own governments. And so we struggled to see how we're going to maintain and have great work-life balance for our physicians, and of course, the reduction of services. Mm -hmm. 
to be able to match now that these positions are going to have to continue to work or we're going to have to, in the end, we're going to have to inject breaks, which means we'll have to disrupt some of the services so that they can get their breaks because we just couldn't get the locals in. And hence, though the Cuban Brigade has been a great resource for us, there are some specialties uh, positions that, that didn't come into. So therefore, that led to us then uh, looking at building a business case to see how can we inject more resiliency. We've learned from that. And so that caused us now to put a proposal towards the injection of registrars and medical interns as creating multiple layers of physician support to be able to withstand any few current and future impacts. The other thing that um, in terms of, of, of workforce is nurses. Before the pandemic started, <laughs> nurses were shortage internationally, especially yes. specialist nurses. And so what happened to us, of course, there was a lot of pull factors from like, the UK and the US with their shortages. I mean, if you wanted to be a nurse today, uh, you, you, it's competitive. The, in in the, the UK today, if you want to be a nurse, they will give you a full rider, they will give you citizenship. Exactly. And the same thing. So we have some of our nurses who've left for like travel nursing, um, earning somewhere around $4,000 a week, up to $5,000 a week. And around job. The significant shortage. And so there was a large pool of nurses from the TCI, the Caribbean. It's not just TCI, but the Caribbean overall. Mm -hmm. And also, in, for example, in the UK, for example, the poll wasn't, say, leaving outside of the UK. The poll of persons who actually, you know, the Great Reset, right? Not Great Reset, um, the Great um, Resignation. Mission. The Great Resignation. It's the Great Reset. Resignation. Okay? The Great Resignation. And so what they had to do is they had to, had to accelerate their nursing student programs mm -hmm. and grow more nursing student programs. So what am I getting at? Local capacity building is a must for us here in TCI, especially if we're going to think about diversifying the health um, revenues with medical tourism, because it's fundamental to ensure that your local capacity is robust for your citizens, first of all, uh, and then whatever extra capacity you have, you think about medical tourism, because medical tourism can cause inequity. If you are creating markets in excess for tourists within your healthcare system, right, while not also making sure that you have a robust infrastructure to support your local citizens. So you don't want to create inequities. And so certainly what we've learned out of this pandemic that we're still in, but there are lots of lessons learned that we're all working uh, on together with our key partner, which is the Turks and Caicos Islands government, Building the health system capacity, building the health system capacity so that we are much more adaptable, we're much more resilient, and we can actually see how also, because we are engaged, Turks and Caicos, in a form of medical tourism ourselves. If you remember recently, either early this year or last year, the Dominican Republic actually um, congratulated the Turks and Caicos Islands for medical tourism. And that's really under the arm of what we call cross-border movement of patients, yes. right? So they said that they had well, a couple of million dollars worth of cross-border movement of patients from the Turks and Caicos Islands for health tourism. But we really know that is really one form of medical tourism mm -hmm. where systems that don't have the capacity uh, move their patients to other uh, systems that have the capacity for care versus persons intentionally moving of their own accord mm -hmm. uh, to purchase services elsewhere. And so also, too, we need to see how we can reverse that tide also yeah. and bring that money back into the system. And when I say bring that money back into the system, people say, well, are you talking bring that money to the <laughs> hospital only? No. There's one thing about, you know, um, I believe that we all should have a system thinking mindset and not hospital, primary health, private sector, have a system thinking mindset. So if we're repatriating services back into Turks and Caicos, we're actually repatriating into the system. What services are best delivered by the developing of the hospital so they deliver there? What service can be delivered within the private sector within the community? We've certainly showed their strength 
right during this pandemic because they were a great resource for us during this pandemic and you know nationally. Yes. So also, um, in your bio, you said that the strength of a healthcare system lies in the ability of leadership to leverage multidisciplinary teams, innovative technologies, and adherence to evidence-based principles. Could you expand on that? Thank you. So let me start with evidence-based principles. It is very important, and it is a key pull uh, factor when you think of the medical tourism realm, accreditation having accreditation. Accreditation, this is actually the first accredited institution I have ever worked for as a physician, straight up to as a leader. When you do the research within the Caribbean, there are very few hospitals that are accredited. And so accreditation is very important. It's, it's rigorous. It speaks a common language, whether you're doing joint commission or you're doing accreditation in Canada, whether you're doing ISO, it speaks a common language and it says something to anyone who's interested in coming into a healthcare system, whether they feel safe to do it or not. You will always have persons who are attracted by the dollar and the dollar value of a treatment. Uh, it's, a, it's one attractive factor, but also the quality of the treatment and the safety of the treatment should also be other major pull factors. And having accredited facilities is very, very important. Now, with the contract or the service level agreement with government, having accreditation with two years of operation was a mandate within the contract. And we have we've been able to successfully maintain that at the highest level, at the diamond level. But of course, thinking systemly, it's also important that we also have accreditation standards and standards of operation within the entire healthcare system that we all can work towards, there are measurable targets, there's monitoring and evaluation, and it all leads to system elevation and a sense of quality assurance and continuous quality improvement. And that is where the health regulatory authority is going to come into play. So TCI is in the right direction in terms of elevating the whole of the entire healthcare system towards evidence-based practice and principles. Now, one of the things also uh, you mentioned there was about leveraging. You know, no man is an island. And the same thing comes to health. We, as leaders, have to be able to leverage our teams within our organizations, but also outside of our organizations. We're one small healthcare system. And so if we're seeking to, well, let's take medical tourism, for example, and it is a task force that actually was there prior to the pandemic that highly likely that the Ministry of Health will bring back forward again. But this task force encompasses multi-sector, multi-stakeholder individuals, and we sat together. We looked about doing feasibility studies. We looked at what are some of the niche markets mm -hmm. because I said, we can't all do the same thing. No. And at the end of the day, the trucks and takers is a high-end destination, but it has a high-end economy and high-end prices and everything else. <laughs> so to, to run the hospital in the trucks and takers islands and any private facility, the overheads don't compare to Elsewhere. elsewhere, right? So they can be competitive on the price point just because the ability to operate in trucks and takers the cost to, to, to us is much higher mm -hmm. than theirs. But we have so much pull factors here. We have the relative safety that has been in TCI, the uniqueness of it, the beauty of it, the naturalness of it. And so we need to think, what are those niche? Not duplicate, right. because we may not win in the price point with duplication. Mm -hmm. And people want a sense of diversity and variety, yes. right? We can't copy, copy, do the same thing. So that group, we were going to think, what are some niche things that we would want to get into? What are some things that um, would uh, not uh, marry uh, low risk, low, and we think of low clinical risk, yes. low litigious risk, yes. and so forth, but yet quality, but yet speaks to the essence of the Turks and Caicos Islands. Yes. And so some of the strategies we were thinking about that really are low risk, would be some things around wellness. Wellness yes. is a billion-dollar business is. around wellness, right? It doesn't have a high carbon footprint in terms of um, within the TCI, in terms of hospital resources, 
or private sector. So how can all of us, hospital included, right, and, and the private sector included, how can we come up with some unique wellness strategies that the hospital benefits, the private sector benefits, the hotels benefits, the tariff, you know, but it's a low carbon footprint, low, um, relatively uh, low clinical uh, risk, and um, certainly build around that. Mm-hmm. The other key areas that goes with our tranquility is rehabilitation. Yes. Rehabilitation. Uh, drug rehabilitation, alcohol rehabilitation. Rehabilitation because the tranquility of the environment and creating space and infrastructure around that, those are some very important things too as well. So looking at wellness and looking at uh, uh, areas that would put us as a niche. So that task force still needs to reconvene. It still remains a key priority for us. But coming, um, seeing our way out of this pandemic, we're more looking towards making sure we embed the infrastructure that has been shown as a, a need, right, coming out as we emerge, seek to emerge out of this pandemic. I'll ask you this. Do you think there's a fear in bringing that to the forefront because it changes the dynamics of what we offer because we do boast luxury, exclusivity in all these other terms. But as you laid out, we can add that as an adjunct to what we already have. But I... I wouldn't say I'm certain, but I'm sure. I would let's go with I'm certain there are persons that are fearful that it would change the branding. But people go around the world for these same niche services. But as you stated, if you can identify 10 key services that are offered with exclusive providers and uh, contractors and the like, everything can run smoothly and everybody wins. Because that's the whole thing is the whole team wins. Now, Question to you, how prevalent is medical tourism in the region? You know, I was trying to do a lot of research on this to bring myself up to date. <laughs> there is a paucity of robust data when it comes to the true impact, quantifiable and qualitative impact of medical tourism within the Caribbean. There really is. You see a lot of figures being uh, quoted. It's a billion-dollar industry. It's a billion-dollar industry. But to quantify it, to say how much revenues um, many of the Caribbean populations or communities are getting, it's very hard to pin it down. We do have a medical tourism index. We do know that we're not in the top 46. (laughs) We have um, uh, Jamaica, Dominican Republic, Costa Rica, most of the... Uh, Latin American countries when it talks about the Caribbean uh, are actually in that top 46. And in fact, with a medical tourism index, number one is actually Canada. Oh, really? <laughs> yeah, it's Canada. Number one is Canada. Well, you know, I wasn't surprised about that, right? Um, first of all, um, I think, I don't know if it's still that case, but uh, one U.S. dollar equals three Canadian dollars. Right. It is built on the same kind of social system uh, as, America. As, a, as, as America is more capitalistic, and so there's a lot of uh, innovation, but also high value, high price things. Mm-hmm. But it doesn't mean that their health outcomes are indicators mm-hmm. uh, matching with the amount of expenditure and expense uh, that are in their healthcare system. But Canada, um, it has uh, a, a social, a bit of a social healthcare system, um, though it has a high taxation to support the healthcare system. And so you find that people. And migrate from the U.S. to Canada for cheaper services, for cheaper, affordable, and a lot of the hospitals are accredited under the same accreditation Canada umbrella. Um, you can drive across from the U.S. to Canada, right, to get what you want, drugs, Canadian drugs, uh, often they are good quality, but yet quite affordable. So they seem to have marketed the real mystic thing, affordability, accreditation as a, as a, as a draw factor there access to the American market. You can just drive across yes. or fly across. They're English speaking, mm-hmm. right? And they have great healthcare uh, infrastructure. And they have medical schools that produce physicians. They have nursing schools that produce nurses. So they have access health professional capacity. So they have been able to capitalize on that. And on the medical tourism index that I looked at for 2021, I think it is, number one was Canada. Oh. Number one was Canada. 
So question, what services or, proce services or procedures that are traditionally offered in the region will say um, people will uptake? Yeah, the traditional services are the ones that you mentioned. Um, rising is in vitro fertilization. Barbados and Jamaica do IVF private programs. The Barbados program is actually accredited under Joint Commission, I think it is. So it's a very, and it boasts some very good uh, outcomes. Uh, the other common ones tend to be joints, and that's really driven by other developed countries that have uh, a backlog in joints. And so that tends to be cosmetic surgery, cosmetic <laughs> surgery, and all of the different types of cosmetic surgery that you mentioned, that's also a key uh, one that is done within the region. Now, when I say the region, it's from my study, a lot of this is done really in Latin America. Yeah. So oh, when yeah. I say region, we're talking about Latin America and the Caribbean, right? Yes. Our proximity would be our neighbor to the Dominican Republic. And as I said, Costa Rica ranked high uh, for these types. But a lot of the Latin America believes all of them. And again, they can have competitive pricing. Mm -hmm. They can have competitive <coughs> pricing. And also, some of them have gone to the work to ensure that their institutions are accredited. Some of them are not accredited, but they are marketing the same thing, sun, sand, right? A yes. Caribbean-type environment yes. climate, mixing your hotel with your medical care. Mm -hmm. uh, but largely, uh, the key driver tends to be the pricing. Mm -hmm. So it's a thing that medical tourism can be risky. The risk of complications depend on the destination, the facility where the procedure is being performed, and whether you are in good physical and psychological condition for the procedures. At this time, what procedures could we safely offer in the TCI? I think the procedures that we can safely offer is some of the cosmetic procedures, and it's not the whole suite. I will let you know that we do still do cosmetic procedures. We have advertised them locally. Uh, we do do breast reductions, tummy tuck, liposuction, facelifts, face facelifts. We do do oh. those. Uh, we do have our visiting consultant program, and our visiting consultant program has our plastic and reconstructed surgeons. So when they come, they actually, they are from the United States. Uh, when they come, they actually take care of our NHIP patients. Mm -hmm. And because there is excess capacity, in other words, the demand of the NHIP load, uh, it's not heavy. So therefore, we don't want them to come in here just we give you a few patients and right. what happens. So again, that's important, excess capacity. Yes. So with that excess capacity, we have them. We've been able to kill two birds with one stone. So they come for the NHIP patients, but also we have a cosmetic list waiting for them mm. that they do as well, right? And so they do that and then they leave, right? So we do have cosmetic procedures, of both that are procedures that they do in the operating theater, as well as procedures that they do in the clinic, such as Botox and all of those other injectables. I have, to look at your, I have to look at your list. Right? <laughs> so we do have that. So how have been in, so we've chosen procedures okay. that align with the fact that we are a cute secondary facility and mm -hmm. we don't need the ICU backup associated with that. They choose the patient specifically that are low risk, mm -hmm. right, that are not likely to have complications and need ICU backup because we don't have ICU that. Though that is one of the infrastructure capacities we're seeking to develop and we're working on the um, business case to present to government for that. And they, they optimize on the, the injectables, which is, you know, a pretty um, reasonable market here within the Turks and Caicos Islands, within the private sector also, uh, the injectables. Mm -hmm. And also um, the other thing that we used to do that we're seeking to bring back and we're in discussions and seeking to have um, uh, orthopedic surgeons who actually are proficient with this, is we want to get back to doing joint replacement uh, surgeries because we recognize that there would be a, a, a demand now. There would be waiting lists because we're not the only healthcare system that was impacted, right, by that. And so we have done that before. We've done that before safely, and we would like to reintroduce that. But before we reintroduce mm -hmm. that, because that is our uh, operating theater capacity. That is also our bed capacity. So it's, there's also the aftercare capacity to have re rehabilitation. So what we want to do is ensure that we are strengthening our local capacity for our operating theater in terms of nursing capacity. And so we have presented a business case for 
for additional nurses coming out of the pandemic to strengthen that capacity. And it's also strengthening our rehabilitation capacity as well and our bed capacity for our extension. So it is very important when you embark upon medical tourism, as I mentioned previously, you have to ensure that you do not compromise the delivery of care that you're giving to your local population. Mm -hmm. Your local population is number one. And then number two is ensuring that you have the capacity, the access capacity to absorb, safely absorb that medical tourism and choosing those that are low risk, still have the high volume, maintaining your quality. And I also believe there has to be, this has to also be nationally driven also, mm-hmm. right? As it was previously before with that task force and having the necessary uh, uh, medical tourism you know, and, and I, I, I must profess I'm biased. I like the word health tourism. Right. I like the word health tourism. Because health takes in all aspects and dimensions of what you spoke so eloquently before. It takes in the dimensions of the private payer who wants to come and purchase services. It takes in dimension and consideration to keep an eye on how much we are purchasing services mm-hmm. outside of TCI so that we can ensure that we build that capacity within TCI and the dollars and the revenue stay within TCI, and also take in consideration hospital-based type services and non-hospital-based type services. One thing that I have observed coming, emerging from this pandemic, and I hopefully you'll be soon emerging from this (laughs) pandemic, (laughs) emerging from this pandemic, is the growth in uh, the hospital, but growth in our private sector also. The private sector is diversifying their offerings. So what does that lead to? That leads to a whole health system growth. So growth of the hospital for more services, more care on island and strengthening the human capacity, our human capacity, and also diversifying services and encouraging the private sector to grow as well. Now, that builds redundancy. That builds redundancy. So whatever service is temporarily disrupted at the hospital, it's great to know that that service is also available in some form or fashion in the private sector. Mm-hmm. So we can get it from the private sector while the hospital regains that capacity. What happens if something happens in the private sector? The capacity is at the hospital. So these are the things that we need to position ourselves for as we look towards diversifying with health tourism. So patient satisfaction is an important dimension of healthcare treatment. Relative little is known about the experience and satisfaction of medical tours. What do you think this is? Uh, well, from, I can only take it from what we do in terms of our satisfaction mm-hmm. from the clients that we've had that have had their cosmetic surgery and their injectables mm-hmm. and those that had benefited from the joint replacement program. They loved it. Mm-hmm. The satisfaction was very high. What was the aspect? For, and just to let you know, the cosmetic surgery <coughs> and the joints, the cosmetic surgery, so probably about 50% of our clientele is actually trucks and cakes, oh, islanders, really? right? And when it comes to the joint replacement, they all, it also was a hybrid program. They came in a focus on the NHIP joint replacement program, and the excess capacity was actually Canadians coming down to have their joints done. Oh. And the feedback from both our clients saying, having the care done at home, they loved it. And also Canadians, they loved it. They love Turks and Caicos. They love the hospital. Yes. They love the Turks and Caicos environment. And so, you know, I think the satisfaction is very good. It's very important that you have a robust program mm-hmm. and you have a quality program. You have the framework. You have the because there's nothing like doing something half cocked. Right? Don't rush into things. So, you know, together we need to continue to build on that framework. We launched that steering committee have those policies, have those, uh, continue to advance the HRA as a key agent in that too as well for quality assurance and work together, figure out a niche market and do it together and launch a robust program. I think it will be successful just by the little we Mm -hmm. have been doing. Mm -hmm. So talk a bit about patient follow-up. With medical tourism, patient Mm -hmm. follow-up by providers sometimes are rare because Mm -hmm. you're leaving your jurisdiction to go to another country and come back home, how important is that patient follow-up? It is very, very important. Let's take, for example, with the joint program that we had. Mm-hmm. It was done in tandem, right, with mm-hmm. a local uh, program, program agency in Canada itself. So, therefore, the patients moved 
the patients moved from that program to us and there was robust screening, mm-hmm. knowing the ICU limitations. So the so we patient selection was very key. So the patients moved from their program, from their position from Canada, got their care done in Turks and Caicos, had their aftercare done, and then they moved back into the hands of the program that sent them to us. So in other words, there is a loop there. Mm-hmm. The patient didn't actually jump on a plane, came to us, right. get something done. We did some aftercare, and then they jumped on the plane and they left. We didn't know what happened after that. No, they moved in. So if we're we, so that model works best for us. Mm-hmm. So this is a model I think we need to replicate, right? That you have a link. So you must have a link on the other end where the patient is coming from, yes. and there must be good communication and system integration, right? Locally as well as with that link to ensure that you also know the aftercare is assured when the person has left uh, the country. Because brand, brand is very important. Mm-hmm. And right now, some of these places that have this medical tourism program, the brand get hits. Right. The brand get hit with quality questions. The brand get hit with, um, you know, quality questions, essentially. Yes. I'll leave it right there. So the branding is very important because... We would not only be marketing TCI Hospital World, private sector, we would be marketing Turks and Caicos. And hence, that's why I think this is a, you know, a, a, a national um, initiative tying us all together. To piggyback on that, some destinations have marketed themselves as healthcare cities more or widely as biometric cities. Singapore, for example, is one of them. At some point, because you go back to your group, mm-hmm. do you think we can get to that place? We can. And that is what, what is a healthcare city? It's creating an ecosystem. And what I have been saying today is system. I've not been saying Interhealth Canada, <laughs> Turks and Caicos. Right. If everyone is listening keenly, I like sharing because I believe in systems thinking when you're doing a project. So I'm saying Interhealth Canada, Turks and Caicos Islands Hospital, private sector, uh, government, we all have to work together. So how, a health city is simply an ecosystem. And I think that we have the makings of an ecosystem. And through leadership, we can cultivate this ecosystem under our common goal, right, of ensuring that we continue to build on our local capacity and look for that excess capacity niche market, right, and together work on a Turks and Caicos Islands health tourism program. That so, sees movement yes. of patients back from where we're sending them now and spending those dollars by building capacity and attracting for niche markets within the system itself. So as you're talking about national strategies, a range of national government agencies and policy initiatives have sought to stimulate and promote medical tourism in their countries. Many countries see significant economic development potential in the emergent field of medical tourism. The Thai, Indian, Singaporean, Malaysian, Hungarian, Polish, and Maltese governments have have all sought to promote their comparative advantage as medical tourism destinations at large international trade fairs via advertising within the overseas press and official support for activities as part of their economic development and tourism policy. Since 2003, Singapore Medicine has been a multi-agency government industry partnership aiming to promote Singapore as a medical hub and a destination for advanced patient care. It is led by the Ministry of Health and has support from the Development Board, International Enterprise Singapore, and the Singapore Tourism Board. Do you see this for us? Yes, I do. And I'm not saying, when I say I see that, I'm not saying that we're going to be able to duplicate right. Singapore. We have to look at Singapore's size. We have to look at Singapore's GDP. We have to look at Singapore's healthcare system and infrastructure. You know, there are going to be obvious differences. But we need to harness, again, what are our niche and work together collaboratively, multi across government, across sectors, and across. Yes, we can achieve that. What's very important, we would see that it is a journey of development. Singapore didn't just jump up overnight and say they're going to advertise themselves as a hub. They built their infrastructure. If you look at the healthcare system within Singapore, they built their infrastructure. 
They built not just the health system infrastructure, but they built the infrastructure in Singapore, mm -hmm. right? Overall, Singapore is a very progressive society with a lot of innovation driving it. And so I would say, don't market yourself until you're ready. Right. Get the, all the ducks in a row in a line. Build your infrastructure. Build what is your niche, right? And go out there and aggressively market. So yes, we can do it. Yes, we can. I think we have the makings of it, right? Don't try to duplicate what others are doing. Figure out those niche and the feasibility of those niche. And let us create the Turks and Caicos Islands Health Tourism Hub City. We can get it off the ground. But we have to one building block after the other. Have a vision for it. And then design the strategies to get us to that vision. Perfect. Dr. Denise Brathway Tennant, it was indeed a pleasure having you on with us today. Do you have any final thoughts, barring from that, on medical tourism or health-centered people-focused healthcare? Well, my final thoughts is that I am very proud to be a Turks and Caicos Islander. I love the Turks and Caicos Islands. We are a multicultural community. We are growing leaps and bounds. Let us, let us though in our growth, let us remember to be kind to each other. Let us remember to ensure that we have uh, inclusion. Let us remember our youth and encourage our youth because I don't think they're the future. They are the now. Let us work together as a healthcare system to continue to grow our capacity. I think that we are the jewel. <laughs> we are the jewel. But like the old diamonds, it has to be refined under cool and pressure and heat to ensure that we have a great product to deliver. We're young yet, but we have great, great potential. So how can persons find you to connect with you? Oh, my goodness. I can... <laughs> my email? What's that? They can find me at the Cheshire Hall Medical Center. Um, they can look me up there. I think many persons know my telephone number already too, right? Yes. But I'm at the Cheshire Hall Medical Center, and when I'm not there, I'm at the Coburn Town Medical Center, and um, I'm quite accessible all about around the community. Thanks again for joining us today, Dr. Denise Brathway-Tennant, Chief Executive Officer for the Turks and Caicos Islands Hospital, Interhealth Canada. I hope that over the course of this show, you learned a lot about medical tourism. Medical tourism is an emerging global industry with a range of key stakeholders with commercial interests, including brokers, healthcare providers, insurance provision, hospitality and transport specialists, conference and media services. A key driver in the medical tourism phenomenon is a, te is a technological platform provided by the internet for consumers to access healthcare information and advertising from anywhere in the world. Drivers of medical tourism include globalization, economic, social, cultural, and technological. Many domestic healthcare systems are undergoing significant challenges and strain, tightened eligibility criteria, waiting lists, and shifting priorities for healthcare may all impact on consumer decision-making. There is also the emergence of patient choice and forms of consumerism, including within countries, that traditionally have the public-funded services. Openness of information and development of diverse providers competing on quality and price now cater for all demands. There are, for example, important bilateral exchanges between OECD members. Some OECD countries seek to leverage their own strength to become providers in the medical tourism market. With, the, with all the attendant implications, there are also flows of patients from OECD countries to lower and middle income countries, in particular, India, Thailand, Malaysia, Colombia, Costa Rica, and regionally in the DOMRAP will necessarily have potential repercussions for healthcare systems of OECD countries. Despite a number of countries offering relatively low cost treatments, we currently know very little about many of the key features of medical tourism. Indeed, there are no authoritative data on the number of flow of medical tourists between nations and continents. While there is a general consensus that the medical tourism industry has burgeoned over the past decade and that there is scope for even further expansion, 
uh, there remains disagreement as to the current size of the industry. Concerns for the quality and safety of medical care provided overseas have also emerged due to the lack of robust clinical governance arranging arrangements and quality assurance provide producers pro procedures in provider organizations intended to safeguard the quality of care provided to tourists. There have also been questions over the training, qualifications, motivations, and competence of healthcare professionals. In response to such concerns, a range of independent accreditation schemes have been established with the aim of assuring the care of medical tourists in a way that avoids potential conflict of interest. Groups such as the Joint Commission International from the United States and Quality Healthcare Advice Trent Accreditation in the United Kingdom, for example, have accredited a number of healthcare providers centers around the world. So for those of you that are considering medical services abroad, it is imperative that you do your due diligence. See your healthcare provider or travel medicine provider at least four to six weeks before your trip to discuss the general information for healthy travel and learn about the specific risks you may face before your health because of your health status, the procedure, and travel before and after the procedure. Importantly, do obtain international travel health insurance that covers medical evacuation back to your country of origin or the U.S. if need be. Also, if you're looking to be medevac to the U.S., do ensure that you have a valid United States of American visa as ESTA just won't do. To that end, I leave you with positive vibrations and wishes for good health, physical and mental, and trust that you love the body that you're in. If it needs fixing, you know what to do. I will end the show with This Is My Island by Barbara Johnson, the songbird of the Turks and Caicos Islands. That said, I am Sir Courtney. Until we meet again, over and out.